0: How do we understand the way that Kazal in a collection of Midrash called Raba, Rabbah, okay, or in English Leviticus Rabbah, how do they make sense of all the laws in Vayikra that were no longer relevant in the time period in which this collection was put together, which is roughly the 5th century CE. Let's remember for a moment. When was, what was, when? what is the date of Korban Bayat Rishon? The destruction of the first temple. 586 BCE. Okay, 70 years later, give or take, Bayat Shaini is built, the hands of Ezra and Nehemiah, and the Jews live with the second temple until 70 CE. Okay, so after the Common Era, and it's easy to remember that because stories about Jesus take place, right, to the very, very end of the Second Temple period. 70 CE is for Bai Chani, Second Temple is destroyed. And the collection of Midrash that we're talking about, that was put together in the land of Israel by rabbis who were still living there 400 years, right, with no temple, without sovereignty. Right, living in a landscape that was populated by churches where Christian neighbors were speaking very loudly about right, what they perceived to be the fall of Judaism. And this collection of Udrash is one example that we have of how Chazal were at once interpreting the words, what do they mean, and giving their audiences, which we'll assume for a moment was shul audiences, we don't really know that, ways of thinking about Vayikra that would encourage them to come back to it year after year after year. And I think every year when I look at Vayikra Rabbah that every shul rabbi has this problem, right? I mean, there's like this whole stretch of weeks ahead where there's so little material that people can sink their teeth into because we think about the subject matter in Vayikra. What do we have? Temple stuff, like sacrifices. What else? Okay, Tuma, right? Tuma and Tamara, purity and impurity. What
1: else? Okay, the rules of the of the Kohanim and Levim. What else?
0: Okay, so the part that surprisingly is the most relevant is the long stretch right at the morning. if you the Mispo, then all these wonderful things will happen. If you don't, then these terrible things will happen. That's timeless. Okay, so the tophaka is also in there. We also, right, we have... The meaning part of the rabbi's life is Kedoshim Tiyu, right, which is really very short, but Kadoshim Tiyu, which begins parsha. Kadoshim, okay, holiness, that, I can use, right, we can talk about does it means to construct the holy people, holy space, holy time, right, Kadoshim Tiyu. But the bulk of the book is absorbed, right, in temple-related stuff that was no more relevant in the 5th century than it is for us today. So Vayikra Rabba represents a very interesting attempt to not ignore Vayikra, which is, I guess, one option, right, but certainly not an option that Chazal would have adopted because, of course, the assumption is, if this stuff is in the Torah and God gave us the Torah as an eternal... I don't want to say the word document, but I'm having trouble thinking of another word, then God must have intended for us to keep making sense of this book and continue to read it. So how do we do that? Right. So I want to show you one example, and it has to do with the body, how Hazal made sense of a particular set of sukim that were no longer useful in any practical sense and turned it into a whole other set of values and ideas that were eminently useful to their audiences. So before we look at the Midrash, open with me to Vayikra, chapter 12, Vayikra Perek Yudbet. Okay, so Vayikra Perek Yudbet is the very beginning of Parsha Hazriyah. It's a super short parak. It's only... Eight psukim, okay, and these are all the laws related to a woman who has given birth. So keep in let's, let's read the psukim, let's generate our own questions, and let's think about, before we even look at, well, maybe the title gives it away, but beginning to think about how you could turn this around into something else. Okay, Renee, can you start reading for us? Um, like whatever this, language
2: the Israelite people thought when a woman a child birth bears a male she shall be unclean seven days she shall be unclean at the time of her menstrual infirmity oh, there's great word on the eighth day the flesh of the horse skin shall be circumcised she shall remain in the state of blood purification for thirty-three days she shall not touch any consecrated thing or enter the sanctuary until her period of purification is completed if she bears a female she shall be unclean two weeks as during her menstruation, and she shall remain in the state of blood pur- purification for sixty-six six days. On the completion of her period of purification for either son or daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb and its first deer for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or turtle-dog dove, turtle dove for a sin offering. He shall offer it before the Lord and make a on her behalf. She shall then be clean from her flow of blood such are rituals concerning her who bears a child, male, or female. If, however, her means do not suffice for she, she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. The priest shall make expiation on her behalf, and she shall be born.
0: Okay, great. I'm really glad you read it in English, although it's always tricky because there are so many choices that JPS made, but some of the, um, I think, provocative elements are made more clear in the language that we understand. Okay, so what is the subject of these tsuki? Okay, what did you get from it just from reading it, reading it the first time? What are we talking about? to <laughs> okay. so, childbirth. Okay. So it's a purification ritual for a woman who has just gone through childbirth. And the way the tsukim are organized, first it's zakhar, right? If, if the, the child is a boy, and then if the child a girl. Okay? Um Ishaki itazria be'alda zakhar. It's how the psukim begin. We need to have the Hebrew on the board because it'll be important for the midrash. Ishaki itazria be'alda Okay, sorry. What do you do with these with this phrase? Yeah. Okay, we see the word zera, seed, in tazria, but okay, but tell me about the form of that word. Uh,
1: tazria means to plant. Okay, tatio, right?
0: It's active. This is sounds like okay, but I, but the discomfort is obviously what is it talking about? Sounds like if a woman emits seed. Okay, ejaculate would be the word that we would use. Now, in case. Uh, This was not made clear to me until I started learning this material. In the ancient world, and the Bible and Kazal are not an exception to this, there was no notion of an egg. It's like thousands of years before there's any idea of egg and sperm. And it's not so crazy if you think about it that you wouldn't know about the egg until there was much more advanced scientific understanding. There are all kinds of theories out there as to how a child is conceived semen and blood. Semen at nothing. But they got okay. the, semen part? the semen part, well, it's visible.
2: No, but I mean people do it all the time. And they don't have children necessarily. I always wondered about that. Yeah, the
0: semen was pretty universal. It, the question is what, what does it interact with? How does it turn into a child? But egg is just nowhere in the in the in the vocabulary. So Zara here can't mean egg. Which today we could say, yeah, that's kind of true. Although this is not quite the emitting part, but right? When the egg is, gets ready, so to speak. Um, so what does it mean in the Bible? It doesn't mean that. Something, okay? Something active, okay? They Yalda, Zafar? She And she gives birth. Okay, so one way, Suri's way, is to break this up into conception and childbirth. Okay, that's one way of translating the pursuit. It's actually describing a two-stage process, which is accurate. Okay?
1: Yeah? sexuality is and
0: she report first she then we right. so this on. correct this tattoo is so. turned into a bit of advice if you want the result of zakar this is what you need to do it's in the gemar. Yes. right exactly Huni, and, and there, it's very it's very interesting that you're right from a sexuality perspective there was there was an awareness of mutual orgasm and pleasure and also the assumption that there was some connection between that and conception Okay, but from let's say back from a shot perspective, we're talking about the introductory pasuk to a set of purification rituals. Okay, we are spending a lot of time on these verbs, but it's clear in the pasuk. It's okay when a woman has a baby boy, then this is what she needs to do. Okay, we're gonna come back to why this is important in a moment. What else did you notice about what happens post-childbirth? What does a woman need to do, whether it's a boy or a girl? What what does that mean, purify? First, what happens? Okay, before she purifies. She has to to wait until the blood stops. Okay, well interesting, it doesn't say that. Okay, there's waiting, but what, what, what exactly does it say? How long does she need to wait? Seven days. Okay, seven days for a boy, and 14 days for a girl, and then what? And there's the 33 for boy and 66 for girls. Now, what's the difference between? Before we get to the gender difference, what's the difference between the two waiting periods? Let's just say within a boy, double. Right, but let's say, but let's, let's say just talking about the seven and the 33. What happens differently in the seven than in the 33? So,
1: the, uh-uh, and the 33, the, the she okay,
0: good. And also. As, as Renee noticed when she was reading it, in the seven, it is compared to Nida, okay? Whereas the 33, it says, Shave and Bechol Kodesh Velha Vel HaMikdash She can't touch anything that's Kadosh, and she can't go to Mikdash. So basically what this means is, that for the seven days, or the 14, she's separated from her husband. Whereas in the 33 and 66, she's reunited with her husband, but she's still separate from the mikvah. Okay? So it's a kind of gradation um, of separation. We don't have this anywhere else
2: in any other type That's of Tumatara. Yeah. i never understood about this. So for that, first seven days or 14 days, you're basically considered nida, and then in those days, you go to the Mikvah, and even though you were probably still bleeding, right? That that blood was considered not tamar Correct. Blood. The mei that right. That's
0: right. Which is why I corrected Rochelle. It's not about the blood actually stopping in the Torah. It's not
2: exactly how hadal understands it. Right? This is not. This is not what we do today. Okay. And so the re-entry into let's say regular society, doesn't occur until after the 33 or 66. Right, right. right. Then right? everything's over. Then at the end of
0: the 33 or the 66 is when we have the purification ritual. That's when she goes to the mikdash
2: and she offers a specific set of korbanot that she and offers. she to go to the mikvah again, not because of the blood, but because
0: I don't know if there's mikvah again. Well, it certainly doesn't say anything about mikvah. you have
2: to go to the mikvah before you um, do that? As a regular, as a regular ablution. I don't know. Okay. I don't
0: know. Her question was, let's assume that after the 7th of the 14th, she goes to the to reunite with her husband. Is she doing that again before she offers the corporate note? Right. I know,
1: but what was the very last thing you said to Doesn't everybody
2: who went to of the Corbyn <laughs> have to go to before? you I don't think so. The uh, the, the, the point assumption point is, that
0: point
1: point 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 is that... Right. Tomorrow. And, and so... you were telling me whether it was um, so if uh, so uh, a woman, woman you were going to
2: go you get pregnant so if a woman had sex with a woman yeah but just for okay. her right. because she had statement. no, so, but, so the next day if you were going to then a she day would day yeah be right, the
0: interesting thing about purity and impurity is that the status quo or the default position is pure right it's not it's not what you would think like oh in order to become pure I have to do something it's only if you Dipped into impurity, so to speak, then you need to get out of it. Oh,
2: okay.
0: But normal people walking around are in a state of Tahara. Because, but well,
2: aren't there like a zillion mixes that they excavated, you know? Oh, because the kohanin would constantly would go, go. pretty much to the right,
0: place. right, 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 exactly. Okay, so back
2: to this for a moment.
0: So, two periods of separation, and of course, the question that everybody wants to know is why is it doubled for girls as for boys? I will tell you, having spent a lot of time on this topic, there are no satisfying answers, okay? It's just one of those mysteries. It doesn't mean anything um, misogynist. It doesn't mean anything feminist. It's just simply, it's a mystery, okay? And it doesn't have to do with bleeding and you know all kinds of ideas that women's experiences after having a girl is harder or more. None of them are satisfying. okay? We don't know why. And more importantly, for our purposes today, Khazal are not energized about this question at all. Why, boy, one amount of time, girl, another amount of time. Not interested in that question. Okay.
1: okay what happens the afterwards? Teacher, yeah. The teacher, okay. Uh, here it all uh, Yeah. About many other things, that with with the uh, circumcision, um, a woman is somewhat elevated. She's kind of in in, in a lower position spiritually. Because of her travail, travel, and that uh, she's
2: raised somewhat
1: higher than with the circumcision. She's connected more, but not so with, with the girl. And so, uh, as a girl, it takes more time for her to reach a level where she's past the physical aspect of the connection with
2: the, the physical and can applies to more spiritual.
1: So That's it, right. I mean,
0: I would just say to that. I mean, personally speaking, after giving birth, I was on a spiritual high. I've never felt that spiritual connection, you know. So the, what, back to our body and soul thing, right? Does blood necessarily then mean we haven't been here but welcome to so the conversation, does bloodiness mean not spiritual? I don't think so, right? Doesn't I mean, the fact that a woman, you're right, right after giving love. birth, had just had this very physical experience and very, you know. Down and out in her body in a way that she's never did before. Does that mean, right? But yeah. okay, 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 good. What happens next after these two different periods? What does she offer? Okay, okay two different corbanote, and you notice this is actually very beautiful. After describes the corbanote that she brings. It says, but if she can't afford it, then she brings two turtle doves. Very beautiful, right? Sukima so are aware of economic differences. And a woman shouldn't not be able to re-enter the community if she can't afford the, the animals that are required. But of course the question that we need to ask is why does she bring a korban khatak? Right? When do you bring a korban khatak?
1: When,
0: when you sinned accidentally, by the way, right? Because if you sin intentionally, there's no korban for you. There's 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 you know, if you were Bemazi, then it's You're going to be held responsible by God. There is no expiation for that. But why? What what could possibly be the sin in giving birth? Okay, we've all maybe heard explanations in the Gemara. Again, very strange and slightly unsatisfying about women who curse in childbirth and say I'll never do it again. And and so then either you are trying to undo your vow or right? Okay, but but you you read a Gemara like that and you realize the Gemara is struggling. How do you understand chata? How does it make sense? It doesn't seem to, doesn't seem to, to match up. Okay. We don't believe in original sin. We, we really don't, right? The idea, actually, if, you, if you've taken the trouble to get pregnant and have a child, you fulfill one of the greatest mitzvot that's out there. So it seems really far away from the notion of fate. Okay, so that's another question that we would ask. You know, why is the korban Khatat? Now, you tell me, if you are a a, a darshan, you're a preacher who's about to face your audience in the fifth century, and Parsha Tzav rolls around again, what are you going to do with these sukkim? I mean, yes, people still give birth and still have, have babies and still have you know a period of nida afterwards, but this whole idea of expiation through korbanot and a reentry to the mikdash simply can't do it. Doesn't exist. So how do you keep everyone interested in these sukkim?
2: Yeah. So when it says after the karband, the tahara means kor dameha, that means that she's considered tahara because be going into a race that makes sense.
0: Mean Kor Dameha is from her own source of blood. But yes, at that
2: point meaning everything's over. The period of of, of impurity is over. She has now been purified. So there's time. kind of like two, I, I've actually never understood this. So there's basically two different levels of Torah yeah. here. Right. One vis-a-vis the husband and one vis-a-vis the vikdash. So Correct. it's, that means everything's over, she's basically fully integrated into right. society. And that, even if a person is still bleeding after all that time? So that's a, that's a good question that I don't, you know, the psukim don't, don't help
0: you address. Chazal do very different things with this, anyhow. Right. So when it gets played out into real life, yes, what happens if after 66 days, and plenty of people have that, right, they're still bleeding. Certainly have a Right. Is there a connection between the cessation of blood and the purification? I mean, Pihap shot it doesn't seem like it's connected. And so
2: we don't know that?
0: Like, You're asking, like, what did people do in the time of the Torah? Yeah.
2: We don't, you know, we don't have information about that, no. And also, I guess, if you went to the mikvah after seven or 14 days, you were going into the mikvah bleeding. Right. And is the se- seven included in the thirty-three? No, afterwards. Right. It's seven plus thirty-three right. enforcement plus.
0: Yeah. Okay, Which right. ends up with a nice round number.
2: Yeah.
0: In both cases. Right. And so two. not an accident, I would imagine. Okay. We ready to get into this Midrashic material? Um, it's pretty rated R. Okay. I think we can handle it. But just <laughs> so you know, it's um, and it's and this is something that I find each time when I teach this. I forget how difficult these some of these images are. I'm now somewhat jaded since I've lived with them for 10 years. But the first time you look at them um, can be a little startling. Okay, so what we have here, come back to our pasuk for a moment before we look at the Midrash. Our opening pasuk, Isha Ki Tazriya the Yadah Zafar. And we said we don't really know what Tezriyah is. Okay, we have a couple of ideas. Maybe it means conception. Other possibilities are Tazria and Yalda together just mean childbirth. Maybe it's not two stages, it's just when a woman gives birth to a right um, to a baby, which is how JPS translates it, right? When a woman at childbirth bears a male. So there is no perception in that translation. Okay, but very much what we can say about this pasuk is that the subject is Isha. She's the only subject. Okay, Not so interesting if you think, okay, these are all introducing a set of scheme about what a woman should do. Who else should be in that pasuk? Right. The co crops up later because he has to get, you know, he's a the, he's the helper job with the korbanot. But Isha, she is the subject, she's the grammatical subject of this pasuk. Now, taking yourself outside of this ritual for a moment, why might that be surprising that the woman is the only subject in
1: a pasuk about children? Well, because they Quite possibly was another woman there with her, who was also part of the. Oh, in the childbirth. Okay. Okay, uh, that's uh, true. Also have the
0: blood. On. Okay, but but that but the blood is not it's not contaminating, right? So the woman who's the midwife has no connection to the purification. She she doesn't become impure by touching the blood. Great question. Though. Yeah. About the
1: husband or the child. Okay. Well, there's no husband
0: in this equation. Okay. And who else is missing? Well, the baby's there, right? It's a trick question. God is missing. Okay, now I say it's a trick question because obviously we're so, I mean, scientific-minded and man and woman. However, what do we know? What does Chazal teach us? Right? Very famous saying, there are three partners in the creation of every human being, mother, father, and God. Now, it's not just because of that rabbinic statement though. If you think about childbirth and Tanakh, okay, think about stories where women conceive. Think about, right, say for Tehillim, say for E.O. where there are descriptions of childbirth, God is always involved. And how many stories can you think of where there's a woman, right, who's trying to get pregnant and she eventually conceives through God's help, right? the, the the typical phrase that we see often Vatahar right? She she got pregnant and she gave birth. Is often preceded by God's involvement, rachma, right? With 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 um with Rachel, right? God literally opened up her womb, right? Basham Sarah, right? God remembered Sarah in a redemptive sense by her conceiving. And so childbirth throughout the Tanakh is connected with God's role. This is the, I would say, the only Pasuk. Okay. Renee is already skeptical. Okay, I have to be careful of how I say the only Pasuk. It's one of the only places in the Tanakh, yes, people get pregnant and have children without God being mentioned, right? The genealogy lists but very seldomly, very seldomly. Um, this is one of the only places where childbirth is mentioned exclusively as a woman's event without a husband or a father connection. But if you are Hazal reading in the fifth century, not only are you looking for a way to turn this around, but you read Vayikra with an awareness of the whole Tanakh. So you never just read a pasuk on its own like we do today. Okay, what do these words mean? What's the grammatical construction, right? You read every pasuk informed by what you see elsewhere. So one of the things that I discovered in learning this Midrash is that what they do is basically they kind of like stuff this pasuk with ideas from elsewhere in Tanakh. Pull it apart. Pick it apart. Using ideas that we see elsewhere. Let me show you what I mean. Okay. So, what we have here in our first passage, look on the top, it says, Leikra and then there's, oh, I should see in the English. Um, no, it says nothing. Okay, if you have the Hebrew and you're curious about it, it says, Leikra and then in parentheses, Margaliot, Parashayodalit. So what the Margaliot means, he is a man named uh, Mordechai Margaliot, was the editor of a critical edition of Ayypah Rabbah. So when you go on Barilan, which everybody should be able to do at some point when you're preparing the class, and you click on the source that you want, it gives you options, which edition do you want to use. And so I use this particular edition, which is why you have it, right, is why it just tells you um, the editor and then the, the number of the parasha. So it's the 14th parasha in the Midrashic collection.
2: Yeah? Given the context in which we're going to be reading this, yeah. you know, go so further and, and prior, I would never have expected God in there. It's Good. Just, it's just like kind of a scientific, you know, it's another medical condition that you have to beautiful. do your carbon thing about. Beautiful,
0: beautiful, okay. And actually what we see, you're 100% right, in the flow of what comes before is Kashrut, what comes after is Sarat, And all of those things are, on the one hand, as you put it, I don't know, natural, right, things that happen to you, right, in the normal flow of life. It's it's banal, 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 yeah, it's ordinary, correct. Now, what's really interesting, what's really interesting about Sefer Vayikra, okay, we're bracketing for a moment, Sefer Vayikra is an incredibly God-infused book, meaning none of this stuff makes any sense if we don't assume that God's behind the scenes. Right, the whole notion of a mikdash or a mishkat is where, right, that is the, the mechanism through by which we communicate with God. But God is really in the details in VaYikra. God's not present in the way that we encounter God in Bereishit, Shmot, Bamidbar, Devarim, where it's very intimate, personal kind of relationship. God is is removed in a sense from VaYikra. Nobody talks to God in VaYikra, right? God speaks to Moshe but that's it. It's not, it's not viewed, in, it's totally different than the way we encounter God elsewhere and it's not. And so, I, mean, I've, I have a very interesting idea of what Chazal are doing with this. But yes, you're right. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with God in the flow of psuche. Okay, back to the text. So what we have here is um, number three or Gimel. I wrote in the English 14.3 so that just means it's the 14th chapter in Vayikarabba and it's the third passage. Anybody know what um, a
2: patista is. Yeah. yeah. Okay, good.
1: Okay, good. So now you're going to nail it.
0: Okay. So I just told you that what we're going to find is midrash on this pasuk, right? And actually, if you look in this 14th chapter, every single one of the nine passages are all midrashim on this one pasuk. Okay, that's one of the things that like a rabbi does. Conveniently, skips all stuff about Corbano and focuses in on one phrase, one idea, which is what a lot of rabbis do, right, in the parsha. Now, a peticha, in or in Hebrew, a peticha. Okay, what word do you see in there? Opening. Opening okay. Well, what a peticha is, it's a particularly t- particular type of midrash, so a particular literary structure that opens with a pasuk from far away. Meaning, this is our pasuk of the day, rather than quoting that pasuk and interpreting it from there, a batista begins with a pasuk from Tehillim, Eov, Mishle, somewhere far removed in a textual sense, and interprets that far away pasuk, offers Midrash on that particular far away pasuk, and only through kind of creative exegesis arrives at the pasuk of the day. Siri, what's helpful to remember about a patessa is that again, it's very similar to what rabbis today do. Right? Beginning with the joke, something about baseball, something in current events, right? Peaks everybody's interest and everybody's thinking, okay, I know that it's parsha toldo. How is the rabbi going to get to, right? And the trick, not that I've ever really done this, because I don't give sermons, but the trick is to choose a pasuk or idea or a joke that everybody can kind of see the connection so that they're not thinking, oh my God, it's going to take three hours, but not too obvious that people just want to go up there and say it themselves. It's the same thing with the patirtha. You want to choose a pasuk from far away that you can begin to see where the darshan is going, but not all too obvious. So what we have here is our first example today of a patirtha. And the batifta begins with a pasuk from Eov. We will read in the English if anybody wants to be following in the Hebrew, because of the height. Okay. The batifta is from Eov chapter 10. You bestowed upon me life and care; your providence watched over my spirit. Okay. You'll either love me or hate me for this, but anytime you encounter a pasuk, you have to look it up. So let's look in Eov um, chapter 10 something that I learned the hard way in studying Midrash is that often you read a passage you think you know what it means, but you have no idea what its context is, so you can't get what the Midrash is doing with it. Why is it important what they're saying? And another sneaky thing about Midrash is that it gets you to really read the Bible, (laughs) because you're constantly flipping around. Okay, so let's look at the beginning of chapter 10. Um, 1671, we're going to start at the beginning of chapter 10. So in the beginning of the chapter, Eo says, as he is wont to do, I am disgusted with life. I will give rein to my complaint, speak in the bitterness of my soul. I say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know what you charge me with. Does it benefit you to defraud, to despise the toil of your hands, while smiling on the counsel of the wicked? Right, Eow, Are you all familiar with Eoav, mm-hmm. right? The greatest kvetch, right, in Jewish history, although incredibly justified. <laughs> He's justified, okay. <laughs> Very justified, okay? But what Eov is basically struggling with, right, for most of the book, is how did I deserve this? I'm not willing to, A, curse God, nor am I willing to say, okay, Gamzu Tova, this all makes sense. Because if it all makes sense, I'm basically saying that God is not benevolent. Right, that's the real conundrum of Eo. If he would just say like his friends are encouraging him in all of their speeches, just admit it. God only punishes those who are wicked. Well, no, it doesn't. I have done everything God has asked of me. If I call myself wicked, then I'm denying that, right? God's system is benevolent. So he is struggling with God the whole time and with his friends, saying, I just don't get it. I don't understand. So here he takes a particularly interesting tack, which is, you know, why does it work for you? To condemn me why is that something that, that makes sense? And one of his, one of his um, proofs, if you turn the page, he basically says to him in verse 8, "Your hands shaped and fashioned me, then destroyed every part of me meaning, you know me. not only do you know me and you know that I'm good, you made me. Why, did, why would you bother to make me only to destroy me? Right. What, what, how, does that, how does that make sense for you as a creator? So in the service of his complaint, he now launches into an account of his creation. Okay, but in, the, but in the context, one more time, he's talking about, as you'll see in a moment, a very kind of intimate description of what it was like to be created by God, but it's all in order to back up his protest to God. So he says in verse 9, Consider that you fashioned me like clay. Will you then turn me back into dust? You poured me out like milk, congealed me like cheese. You clothed me with skin and flesh and wove me of bones and sinews. You bestowed upon me life and care. Your providence watched over my spirit. Yet these things you hid in your heart, I know that you had this in mind, to watch me when I sinned and not clear me of my iniquity. And then he continues with this protest. But if you go back to those verses where he's talking about his creation, okay? Zechorna ki kachomer atitan. you fashion me like clay. Yeah, what does that remind you of? Where else do we have that image? Okay, first of all, Adam, right? In our liturgy on Yom Kippur, which is borrowing on Yirmiyahu, who is not talking about the creation of a person, he's talking about the creation of the, of the nation, but God there is depicted as a potter, right? who can, at any time could just destroy what he's making or rebuild it. It's up to you. You, you, you figure out if you want to be the sinning or the um, appropriate nation. But here, he says, first of all, you made me like a potter makes a pot. You poured me out like milk, congealed me like cheese. Now, this is not something that any of us would say today okay? in describing conception, but this was a common ancient image for conception. Again, think this would assume probably just semen. Semen is the milk and the congealing process is the turning into the fetus. Aristotle uses the same image. Okay, Did he get it from the Bible? Right, possibly. But this idea that um, and Aristotle continues to say that the congealing process is through menstrual blood. Okay, It's the, it's the menstrual blood that congeals the semen and out of which comes the child. Now it just seems so crazy to imagine that. but And then, you clothed me with skin and flesh and wove me of bones and sinews, right? A very gradual, intimate process of creation. I'm going to ask you the same question I asked you on that, too. Who's missing here in Eob's account of his development as a fetus? The mother. or oh, and the father, okay? But it seems as if, right, it's just something between God and Eob, right? And it, of course, rhetorically heightens what they, what they share, right? It was just you and I. I was nothing. I was just a bunch of materials and you carefully wove me, clothed me, you took care of me. Now why would you get rid of me? Okay, but the pasuk where we're headed to is that verse 12, after those series of images, he says, you bestowed upon me life and care, your providence watched over my spirit. Now that's kind of a tricky pasuk because before he seemed to be very specific about developmental stages, right? Conception and then bones and sinews, etc. But what does he mean when he says Chaim asita imadi You bestowed upon me life and care. Right? I mean, there are a bunch of ways to read the pasuk. Is it a kind of recap? It's not actually talking about anything different that God did for Yeov, Right? But everything I just said, that was Chaim Or is he This, this is a creation
2: kind of a spiritual man. This okay. Good. a real man and now there's spiritual man. Good, and that could be
0: from the word Ruach. Yeah. That might be your tip off, right? First, he was describing his development as a fetus,
2: and then he talks about Fasham Chasham Rabruchi by Ruach. And also, that if you're saying it's like a Chesed of Hashem to give him the spirituality, give him the animating force. Okay. Yeah, not only the spirit, but the animating force. Good. Which before that, he's just a material. Uh, Good. Yeah, before that, he's right. just a golem,
0: you know, that kind of having. Good. So it parallels what we saw in Breshe, right? right? That you're both yeah. saying the same thing, that almost Eov is now just saying, this is what happened to me. I was like the animals that was being created, and then there was this turning me into a living being that was human. Okay. But it's, we can all agree that it's somewhat ambiguous how to understand this pasuk. Now, ambiguous Pesuchim are the ones the rabbis love to interpret, obviously, because they're they're ripe, right? They need to be explained. So what you're going to see in this midrash is a series of interpretations of that pasuk in which eventually is going to take us to Ishak Itazria via the opening verse in VaYikra that we're talking about. Okay, we ready? So if you notice, this is if you look in the midrash, you're not going to see it obviously. Even even in the Hebrew, I formatted this so you can see how it works out structurally. So there are, if you count, one, two, three, four. Where does it go? Wait, let me just see yours for a moment. Um, no. I'm sorry, one, two, three, four, five interpretations, and then it ends with our first pursuit from Vayikra. But the first one is really in three parts, so I organized it that way, one A, one B, one C. Okay. Rabbi Abba the son of Kahana offered three parables. Again, three parables that are going to interpret the verse from Eo. Rabbi Abba the son of Kahana said, It is a custom of the world that if a man holds a bag of money and turns the opening downwards, do not the coins scatter? So too the fetus dwells in his mother's womb, but the Holy One, blessed be He, guards it so that it will not fall out and die. Is this not life and care? Okay, raise eyebrows. What is, what is this talking about? What is he, what is he suggesting?
1: Pregnancy, that God is watching that otherwise baby would just fall out.
0: That's right. Okay, so he says, right, he begins, but no hekshabaullah. I'm giving us a very kind of dramatic real-life example. Everybody can agree and you can imagine again for a moment that you're sitting in shul, okay, and if you do imagine that it's a little bit more disturbing, right, but he's saying, look, if I have this money bag and I turn it upside down, of course, everyone knows. Gravity. Coins are going to fall out. So, too, a woman's body is like that overturned money bag whereby the baby should fall out by gravity okay it is somewhat comical right but what is his point his point is to say I think God has this unbelievable protective role that ensures at every moment of pregnancy that the baby doesn't fall out okay and we should we should remind ourselves that miscarriage is common today it was incredibly common in the time of Chazal this was something that was you know a real possibility in every pregnancy and so Rather than saying God forbid a miscarriage means that God wasn't protecting the baby, which of course is a possible take-home message that you might hear if you were one of those women sitting in shul, but more the point is when it works, right? It's a reflection of God's providence. So chaim Bachesed from Amprosuginiuv are literally chaim yeah? Your The baby is kept alive by God's protection
1: of gravity
0: that is suspended in that's water. right right good so God works against the forces of nature to ensure the baby's survival it's very paradoxical right because God is responsible for the forces of nature right so the Midrash here is saying when we'll see it a little bit more clearly in a moment it's as if there is this rule out there but then human beings get this extra level right that supersedes the rule Okay, number two, Rabbi Abba the son of Kahana said another parable. It is the custom of the world that a beast walks with his body in a horizontal position and the fetus is placed within the beast's womb in the form of a covered wagon. Right? Animals walk like this, baby is just comfortably hanging out as if in a covered wagon. But a woman walks erect while the fetus is in her womb and the Holy One, blessed be he, guards it so that it will not fall out and die is this not life and care? Okay, what is gained by that? What is different about that image than in the first one? Because it's pretty much the same concern. Okay, it's actually talking about the same phenomenon. But what's interesting about this is that usually when Fazal compare an animal and a person, the animal comes out looking worse and the person comes out looking better, right? Often the, the point of the comparison is to say, we are not like animals, we, right, right? We have spirit, we have pachma, we have speech. But here, in a, in a kind of way of thinking about it, the animal's bodies are built for the task of safe childbirth, whereas women's bodies are not, right? Of course, we come back to your reading, which is true. But the point is that people get this extra level of protection. And then finally, Rabbi Abba, the son of Kahana, said, It is a custom of the world that a beast has its udders in the place where her womb is, and her offspring suck at a shameful place, whereas a woman has her breasts in a beautiful part of her body, and her baby sucks at a dignified place. Is this not life and care? Okay, by the way, the Ein Zahayim Vahseset, that's a way of the Midrash constantly saying, This is right? This is a good interpretation of what Eo meant when he said. <laughs> now, this one is the most troubling, right? Because it's not about the laws of gravity. It's not saying God makes sure that the baby doesn't fall out. Let's take a moment and think about this. It's a little more interesting in the Hebrew than in the English translation. But an animal's udders are in a place of boshet, shame. Whereas a woman's breasts are in a dignified place, and the baby therefore is able to drink from that dignified place and not from, the implication is the shameful place. How do you understand those words? Okay, boshet and kavod. Boshet le mi, kavod le mi. Right? Who? For whom is it shameful or dignified? Let's run through the possibilities. Grammatically, it sounds like woman. the woman. Okay. Now. It's really hard to enter this conversation, well, a little harder for you because you haven't been with us in this, but even, right, we've bought into certain cultural understandings of the body, right? I shouldn't say, I don't know what any of you think, but I've certainly bought into certain conceptions of the body. We talked about this last week with nudity, right? But, Boshit and kavod, why should it be shameful for me to nurse in the place where I birthed the baby? All things being equal, kind of stripping away societal understandings. You're looking at me like I'm off the wall. That's okay. I am off the wall. But, kabod shel haisha, I don't know, it's not so convincing. Right?
2: Yeah? Yeah, but I mean, by this point, you said it was written down around 6th century, 6th century. There's so much other really yucky stuff about women parts of women's bodies which make Goshen actually sound complimentary. Okay, I mean, it's not so like bad. There's so much other stuff that already has described that place. Okay, but remember that those those terms are not necessarily what women use.
0: Right? Those are terms that are adopted by Fazal to talk about Huforda. Okay, but, but Hazal,
2: that's what talking that's about. That's right. So okay, so, okay, so that is reflect, this man who is talking about this is reflecting a whole history of okay, talking good. about women's female parts and... Shameful as, yeah. As, I mean. Good,
0: so you cut to the chase. That's exactly the point. It sounds grammatically like we're talking about her kavod and her boshet, but it's not at all necessarily her kavod and her boshet. This is the male, as I called it, well, the rabbinic gaze, right? right? Looking at a woman's body, that is what is being assigned boshet and kavod. Yeah.
1: The fetus has been feeding on the inside of the woman all this time. Correct.
0: So it can't be the plot. That's the other option, right? That it's somehow shameful for the baby, but no, why would it be shameful for the baby? Right. First of all, babies don't know better or anything about cultural constructions or, or what's shameful or what not. No, it is It is the imagined shame of the baby, filtered through. And remember that Fazal saw a lot of women nursing. Right, and so we're we're getting a sense of what it looked like. Thank God, With babies nurse up there instead of down there.
2: Right, well, you a lot of women nursing. Women, women—that's th- how babies were fed. No, but is that what happened in the marketplace? In other words, at that time. No, yeah, in the domestic was, sphere. In other words, so it's not like you saw a lot of women. You saw your, you know, your wife. Right, yeah. right.
0: But it's near the place of elimination. Okay, so what's interesting, okay, so what's interesting, good, is that in the Gemara, which has a parallel version of this, instead of Boshed, it's called Makom Tenofet, which means filth. Okay, so again, you could say elimination, or, unfortunately, filth also has connotations that have nothing to do with waste, okay, that have to do with well, women. Women, okay. So what is that? Good. Okay, fine. We're getting a little sidetracked. But coming back to the, but I'm telling you, they're very, they're, they're they're provocative. They're alarming in a sense, although it's very kind of nice in these stories, right? It's like this, this is like that, this is like that. The way that I think about this midrash, which might be helpful, is to think about what were the rabbis trying to achieve, right? What was the goal of creating these midrashim? And then what are the casualties? Meaning I don't think that this Midrash was interested, whoever Rabbi abba that he was interested in denigrating women's bodies. Lehefe. I think his point is to raise an awareness that every single pregnancy is a miracle. Right? Something that can just become and come back to our position have the Zafar, you know, you just conceive and have a baby. The Midrash was saying, wait, hold on a moment, right? In between the conception and the, and the birthing is that whole long period of time where we've only seen Rabbi Abba Mark, but the first concern is the baby could fall out at any one of those moments. And the only reason why the baby doesn't is because of God's providential care. The casualty of using these kinds of images is that it's comparing a woman's body to a money bag, to an animal, and using these types of designations of boshet and kavod, which, as we've said, do not come from women themselves.
2: And, and the further casualty is that it keeps happening and happening because every rabbi you know who writes now is always so and everything that was right. kind of before. That's so, right. You know, like I just have a, such a hard time reading this after 40 years of right. you know feminist. I, mean, just, I find it, it, it really upsets me. So
0: what's helpful, we can talk about this like on a personal level, but what helps me is to separate those categories of, again, what was the rhetorical goal, and then what do we how did, this, how did these midrashim contribute to the gender discourse at that time? Mm-hmm. You're right, it's a whole other thing to say, well, why do people today still use this stuff and talk in this way as if it's obvious this is what women's bodies are? So it's really a very different question, but it's connected. Connected, right? Like someone said to me in, in the other class when we when we discussed this. Fine, I, I'm okay with Hazal talking this way, because actually when you compare, like I did, you know, other medical writers during this time, use very similar images. They're not alone, right? And they're borrowing and they're modifying, and sometimes even they improve them from a feminist perspective. But today, why? Why? Why would you use this? Why would you compare a woman to a money bag? Can't if you're if you're thinking about the the social implications of it, right? So it's true that, that this is this is the tricky part about Safur Razaal that it's not just the curiosity of something we want to see what they did. It's part of our tradition, it's part of what we're still reading and 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 trying to understand. Yeah, Rochelle? i was just
1: thinking about about this connection with a, a woman um, waiting twice as long for right. her, that. Maybe this has already been. But it's, I think of it as because she's making restitution for her daughter who will be having her period. Yeah.
0: So there are those who say that. Yeah. You're in good company. There are Bible scholars who make that argument that there's some kind of like implicit to, yeah, doubling because of that the baby girl. She needs
1: to be taken care of. To, and it's a daughter, then she has to really take care of her daughter's right. problems right. as well as her own. Right. Right.
0: Okay, a little bit more. Rabbi Lazar said, If a man were to stay in an oven for one hour, would he not die? Now a woman's womb is at boiling temperature, and the fetus is in the womb, and the Holy One, blessed be he, guards it so that it should not turn into a mere membraneous bag or a placenta or a sandal-like bag. Is this not life and care? Right? So now it's a different force of nature. It's not gravity, I guess it's like, thermodynamics or something, right? That imagine that the the womb was was boiling. And again, this is straight out of Hippocrates, Okay, that a woman's womb was compared to an oven. We still say it today, a bun in the oven, right? So if you take that image to its logical conclusion, it seems kind of crazy the baby doesn't die from the heat. Again, because of God's explicit care. Rabbi Tachlifa of Caesarea said, if a man should eat one portion after another, would not the second expel the first? Yet however much food a woman eats and however much liquid she drinks, this does not expel the fetus. Is this not life and care? I think this one is the comic relief part of the petirta, of the, right? And you imagine, I mean, we all see this. When you see pregnant women eating and eating and eating and eating and eating and not stopping, there's a kind of, you know, I don't think this is to be taken literally, the chazaf off the digestive tract and they're reproductive tract one and the same, but there's some kind of like, it's almost like a clown trick, right? How could that be that you keep eating and the baby doesn't come out? Again, Chaim said that God takes care of that. Rabbi Shimon said, A woman's womb consists of many chambers, many coils, and many bands, so that when she sits on the travailing chair, she does not cast the fetus all at once. There is a popular saying, when one band is loosened, two bands are loosened. Now this is very interesting because if you, if you notice from the bowls, is trying to make that abundantly clear, there was something very parallel going on up until now, right? Every single one of these sections was interpreting Chayim life and care. In number four, it drops out, right? The Pasuk is not even mentioned, but it's a similar kind of theme. Praising God for keeping the baby okay despite nature. Now it's saying something a little different, which is basically... Now, I took issue with this the first time I read this because I was pregnant and very nervous about giving birth. But he says it's a really good thing that women's bodies basically don't just deliver the baby all at once. Okay, This idea of chambers and coils and bands, and the bands today we would say, you know, centimeter, one centimeter, two centimeter, three centimeters. That popular saying, and we get these in the Midrash, they're always in Aramaic, and they are, mo- they are actually indications of what people were saying. Okay, And I imagine this is something a midwife would say for encouragement. Okay, one, one band, two band, right? And so the Midrash is quoting that as a way to support this idea, but it's beautiful. We get to hear what was being said on the street or in the delivery room. So again, praising now here, the woman's body is not compared to an animal. It's absolutely built to the, for the task of childbirth, right? And again, maybe, maybe as explaining to women why it's so hard why is it so slow well realize this is a good thing because what would happen if the baby would come out right at once all at once what's really the fear i'm not totally sure if the fear is that i don't
1: know I think it's a good I'm, idea. exactly i know right
0: but is the fear that it would be dangerous for the fetus or and and or that the woman's whole body would just come out right there's this possible I don't know right I'm, well, I'm not why do, sure why do
1: you think that if you stand up your baby could fall out come okay over. okay
0: but again Rochelle I don't you know lest you leave this room and think Hazal really thought that no I don't they don't right they don't really think that a, but it's a way of contrasting right they're like it, they're dramatizing so it, it right in order to really highlight you know what seems to be ordinary, and to recognize that in <coughs> fact it's a divinely infused event at every stage. Correct. Correct.
1: Okay.
0: Correct. Correct. And then Rabbi Mayer says the whole nine months of pregnancy that a woman does not see menstrual blood, she really should see it. What does the Holy One, blessed be He, do? He directs the blood upward to her breasts and turns it into milk, so that the fetus may come forth and have food to eat. All the more so if it is a male when a woman conceives and bears a male child. Okay, now this is also parallel to Aristotle. There was a belief in the ancient world that for the nine months of pregnancy when a woman did not get her period, that blood, well, where was it? The idea was that it was in the body and it wasn't being evacuated. And so Aristotle believed that it went somewhere. It got turned into breast milk. What what Rabbi Mayer does with this statement is he theologizes it. That's not just like a curious scientific fact. Fact, God is not only worried about the baby falling out or being cooked or right um, coming out too fast. God is also planning for the chaim and chesed of the baby after the baby's born. And so again, a kind of curious condition that happens within women's bodies, is part of God's providence. Well, the,
1: the, the blood is feeding the baby. Okay. The, the fetus, right? It is feeding the fetus, not the milk, but
0: the blood is going to... No, but his, but this idea is that the, all the menstrual blood that doesn't come out, right, because badinhu, right, by laws of the body, women should Bleed every month. All that blood is stored somewhere in like a facility that turns it into blood, right? Which accounts for the large size. I mean, the, the, right? There, there's more than just a baby in there. There's a whole, you know, factory of, of things that are being turned around. Now, what happens at the end? Okay, so we have these five interpretations of Chayim Bachesar Asita Imadi, right? Remember, our Pesuk Eov was talking only about Eov, and clearly the Midrash is not talking about Eov at all. Right, it's using that the eye, which was EOV speaking, now becomes the eye of the fetus. Right? God has this intimate relationship with every single fetus. And then at the end, when we get to our Pasuk, Isha Kitazria Bi Adazakhar, how does all this Midrash change the meaning of this Pasuk? How would you say, in, a, in, a, in two sentences or less? What does the Midrash do to this pasuk? Because remember, that's the point of the sesta. He went through all this work of interpreting that pasuk and Eo so that this pasuk would, would be read differently, could be seen differently. So what happens to it? Well, it reflects divine. Oh that's right. It's read almost against itself. It looks like Isha. But actually, you have to put God in between all of these phrases. right? If it was just up to Isha, it wouldn't work. But God makes sure, and in this case we haven't even seen God involved in conception, but we'll see that in a moment, pregnancy and childbirth and beyond is on account of God's care. So if you think about it in a, in a, like a larger sense, what we see already in this petehsah is Chazal are giving people the chance to think about childbirth as an opportunity to praise God. Not just as a woman who's gone through it, which is what happens in the Torah. Right? She's the only one involved in something after giving birth. But this becomes an opportunity for everybody to praise God because everybody's been through this. Believe it or not, right? Every person who's alive is a product of a pregnancy. So you hear this patista, and each person can now say, oh, wow, God did that for me. God was there for me at that point. Right? So it globalizes something in vahiro, which is very narrow, right? and and connected to the nikdash, takes the makes the tzatzuk in into a kind of springboard for praise that everybody can partake in, okay? Why does it say you all the more? Okay, good, I was hoping you would notice that, okay? Um, <laughs> in the Hebrew, it's uviyoter im zahar. This doesn't make it easier to understand, but at least we see there's the zakar and there's the zakar, okay? I'm going to tell you something that's very unsatisfying, but what we see in every single potesta is this phrase, which is a kind of bridge from the Midrash to this pasuk in Vayikra. It's very tempting to say, and maybe we'll get to an example where it's a little bit clearer to say, that actually there is more praise that people would give if a boy was born. Okay, and we're not, it's not strange. The Gemara says it very openly, when a child is born, there is more joy in the world than when a girl was born. And we can think of it again, not today, but in the ancient world, economically speaking, that was absolutely true. If you had a boy, it meant your family was going to be better off economically. If you had a girl, it meant you then had to provide a dowry, right? Right, correct, right. So the Oteramayah Zahar could be that, could have all of that loaded sense, or it could simply be a way of connecting to this word Zahar, that's in the Pesuket
2: you but I thought it meant that all the more Chayim v'chesed Yeah. Chesed, if it's a male. Yeah. Chesed. In other words, you're saying there's more chayim and it's this But well, what does that mean? How does God how, what does that mean? Well, what you just connected it to, that it was seen
0: as a bigger racha right. in a male a boy was born. So and not I that God provides more chayim v'chesed but that our our response to that chayim no, should be greater. No, I think
2: is that we perceive more chayim and more Chayyam and from God if it's
0: Right. The only I think you're I think you're right, but the only problem is that chayim and chesed were just given very concrete definitions in this midrash. Chayim and chesed means protection from miscarriage. I mean right, and that can't be more if it's a boy. No, I see
1: what you mean. Right. It's, but but our
0: response to the chayim and chesed should be even more so when we see that in the end the product's a boy. But
1: also yeah. Is, is it connected it's connecting here with uh, with breast milk, and so perhaps. Uh, Maybe uh, the idea being that uh, since the male child might be larger, requiring more nourishment. Okay. So, all the more. Yes. Yeah.
0: I've seen that interpretation but sure on, in one of the medieval commentaries on the Midrash. The only problem with that is that we see this bridge in every single one of the Patefto, so, and you can't always come up with. You'll see. You can't always see, you know, a immediate connection. But yeah, that is something you might think. Okay, so we're, we're the last thing we talked about was the blood, was the right. breast milk. Babies drink more. That's what the yotar is. Yeah.
1: But but uh, I I think scientifically uh, there are more problems with male. The male uh, fetus is weaker, and I think there are more miscarriages with. I think this is something that. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You have to discuss with every new character. I don't know that right. they it is what I heard. About. Right. And also,
0: in the ancient world, I mean, many of these new characters were very early.
1: Right. When it, when it says. They wouldn't they would know. They wouldn't know. Right.
0: I mean, maybe there
2: are more
1: ways both that a male does, but therefore, more obligations to
0: have. Oh. Okay. We're learn. doing Midrash on the Midrash, right? There are so many things, Yoter, that you could, you're right, connect to Zakhar. But I think, you know, just to be conservative, in this sense, it is a formal link between the Midrash and the Pasuk. Okay, let's look at another example. I'm actually going to ask you to prepare it on your own for a few minutes. Um, If you look at the next one, okay, 14.2, it begins with a Pasuk and a Please look it up. And then I'm just going to actually tell you that numbers 1 through Three are very hard, so just skip them. I just want you to prepare Rabbi Levy's three parables. Okay, now ask yourself the same kind of questions. Why do we need the three? What does each teach us? And what's the overarching message of the presenta? And we only have 17 minutes left, so I'll be right back and we'll go over them. some other point in some other class will actually have a chance to learn Midrashim B'chavruta, whole other type of enterprise, but okay. So here's our pasuk from EO. This is what the, the Midrash begins with. I put the Hebrew on the board on purpose because in the English it's actually very hard to see what is Midrashically interesting in the pasuk. Okay? It means I will fetch my knowledge from afar and will ascribe righteousness to my maker. Now, this is Rebecca EO, this is from a speech that Elihu makes, so one of the friends that is trying to get him right, to admit that God is good. Even if your Hebrew is not free, where would you split the verse? Okay, here. This would be phrase one, and this would be phrase two. Okay, now, what do these phrases mean? Actually, let's start with number two, it's a little easier ali aten sedek. So aten sedek literally, I will give righteousness. Okay, that doesn't make any sense. Aten sedek, you can often see translated as I will justify. Okay, you can understand sedek just? I will justify, and who will I justify? I will justify my maker, my poa. Right. So this is the direct object. The Pawal, the, the I is the subject, and this is the verb, okay? And, and the I in the context is elegant speaker. Now, what about on the other side of this parallel verse? Now, this is clearly the verb, right? Esa de'i. What does it mean? Also hard to translate. asa I will lift up, I will raise my da'at. My my knowledge. So again, the subject is I, and this is the verb. I'm not writing the translation. Now, the problem is if we want it to be parallel, then this would be the direct object. And it's, it's nice, they both start with lame, right? To something. But le, me rafok, right? Rafok is far. Me rafok, from afar. How do you translate to, from afar?
1: Okay, so, but Surya, you're
0: already, that's already where the Midrash goes, which makes this adverb, the way it's translated in GPS, right? I will fetch my knowledge from afar, really just actually drops off, takes away the Lamed, right, modifying how I will do my speaking. Surya and the Midrash turn this into a direct object, and if it's to the one who's from afar, well, that can only be God. Right? And so just like God is my maker, my Poal. God is also the one who dwells from afar. Does that make sense? So here I will justify my maker, and here I will, well they say I will fetch my knowledge or I will praise. Okay? I will lift up my knowledge about regarding God, which in plain sense means I will praise God. It was it's, tri- it's tricky. It's tricky. You see, this is a this is a um Right? It's a word that only appears in this construction once in the whole tower and it's here. So you can't if you want to figure out what it means, you can't uh-huh. look
2: somewhere else and say what did it mean there? So um, only this way. i yeah, that with the S with the So I will fetch my knowledge from one who dwells from afar? I'm no, direct. so the fetch my knowledge from it. afar
0: is the JPS translation, which is not reading this as a direct object. Okay. So, so, so in the Midrashic way of reading it, we want this to be parallel. So this is going to be the direct object. Okay. So I'm going to do something to God.
2: Oh, okay, but we didn't get what we're doing to God yet. Then. Well, let's say so I, will, I will praise. How do you get a to praise?
0: Because asadiy means I will, um, well, they say fetch, but I will lift up my knowledge regarding God. I will talk about God. So you're right, I guess talking could not be praising. But it turns out, from what we see, it is praising. He's saying that God is, in fact, just. By justifying is also a form of praise when you're talking about God. Okay, but the tricky piece is taking this word and how do you explain why God is the one whos Len mei Now, we only have a few minutes, but in the sections that I told you to skip, okay, the reason why I told you to skip them is because they're really hard to understand and they are very choppy midrash, not like the one we saw before that was pretty much the same all throughout. All of them adopt the strategy, though, of calling God the one who's mei in one of them, in two C, which is the most easy to understand and the most beautiful, said Rabbi Haggai, we praise God on account of things that are far from him, a distance of 500 years. Okay, This is an, an, a way of describing the, as it were, physical distance between God and the world. So the things that are 500 years, I don't know, in plane travel, I don't know how they imagined it, right, between God and the world, While people sleep in their beds, the Holy One, blessed be He, makes the winds blow, raises clouds, brings down rain, causes plants to grow, dries them, and provides nourishment for each and every person. Obrech Shulchan is the original Hebrew, right? So there's this idea that God lives impossibly far away, and yet every single person gets this, basically, food, a meal set for them by God Himself. Profound image, right? So the rachok is actually turned around. It's rachok, but we don't feel like God's far away at all, right? Because God even does more than, you know, our parents do for us on a given basis, right? Personally, I love the drying the plants, right? There's something so intimate and, and um, eternal. You know about that, making sure it's just right and dry for each each person. Okay, so again, we're talking about God as Lamey Rachok, and the movement in this Midrash, which we haven't read, but I'm summarizing for you, is moving from this idea of God being far to getting closer and closer and closer. And Rabbi Levi's parables are back in the womb, right? So they're as close as you can get. Mm-hmm. So God who is depicted as far away is actually re-read in the Midrash as incredibly close okay so Rabbi Levi said three parables in everyday living the Noheg Shabaulam if a man entrusts another man to guard an ounce of silver in private and the latter returns to him a litra of gold in public would not the former be grateful to his friend so it is with the Holy One blessed be he human beings entrust him with a drop of the whitest fluid in private and God returns to them fully formed and perfected human beings in public is this not worthy of praise? That is to say, I will ascribe righteousness to my maker. To my maker will I ascribe righteousness. Okay, a lot of things going on in this parable, right? How do you understand it? What is he describing? What's the scenario? just makes me smile. Why? Why does it make you smile? It's a beautiful picture. It
1: just does. From nothing.
0: From nothing, right? It's again recaptures the sense of wonder,
1: but like how does that
0: work? How does that happen? To, yeah. To make, to
1: make the egg and the sperm so nothing silver, so nothing.
0: Right. Okay. So in the it's interesting that you say nothing because in the actual parable, silver is not nothing, right? It is an but it's an ounce of silver, which is not a lot at all. And what happens is, assuming let's say. I give you an ounce of silver to hold on to me for a month, and a month later you come back to me with triple the amount in gold, right? Basically, my response would be score, right? I mean, thanks. I didn't ask you to do that, but okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take it and run, right? And the private public, okay, which makes much more sense in the nimshal than it does in the mashal, right? Because people don't generally give money back in public. What does that really mean, right? But um, there's this reversal, right? What, what, happened at, what happened in the beginning is nothing like what happened at the end. Now, anybody, and this is the tactic rhetorically of the Midrash, anybody would, of course, be overwhelmed with gratitude if somebody did that for them when we're talking about silver. That's it. What, silver doesn't do anything, right? By the way, the assumption is, is that the friend invested it, right? Did, did something more with it than just safekeeping. So too, in the Nimshal, human beings. By the way, notice that it's... right. We're white, the whitest fluid we're talking about is semen. But it's the couple that kind of hands it over to God, entrusting God with it, and nine months later, God comes back with this fully formed, beautiful human being in public, which is true. Right? Sex is in private. Childbirth is in, well, relative public. Yeah?
1: But the other, the other thing is that we don't know what he did with the sober to do that. Right. That part of it is left out and I
0: like that. Beautiful, beautiful. It retains the mystery. I, right. But you right. said he
1: could have invested it. Don't tell me that. Right, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Okay, <laughs> it's good. It's nice the way it good.
0: is. Good, good, <laughs> good. And the same thing is left with God, right? We don't, we don't know what God does during that time. It's not for us to know, right? It's behind closed doors, as it were. I'm borrowing from a metaphor that's coming later in the Midrash. But of course, if we think about the casualty piece, which we don't want to, because Rochelle's very happy with this Midrash, but the casualty piece of course is that this is like EO, there's no womb, there's no pregnancy. Right? Somehow, I mean, many people might sign up for this plan, right? that there's the nine months are really just somewhere else, right? and your body stays the way that it is, and then pitom, you get this beautiful baby that's fully formed. Okay, but again, the point is not to take the mother out of the picture, right? Although when we come back to our pasuk, Yishtachai says Ria, right? It's like can't get more grammatically subjective than that, right? Sense of subject, and here it's really God who's doing everything. Okay, Rabbi Levy's second parable. In everyday living, when a man is confined in prison and no one pays any attention to him, if someone comes along and lights a candle for him, would not the prisoner be grateful to him? So too, when an embryo dwells in his mother's womb, the Holy One, blessed be he, lights a candle for him. And this is just as Job said, when his lamp shone over my head, when I walked in the dark by its light. Is this not worthy of praise? That is to say, I will ascribe righteousness to my maker. To my maker will I ascribe righteousness. By the way, the bowls, I was trying to show you all the parallels between the different um, parables. The parallels between the parables. Right? So in the second one, okay, this one which was, again... It's difficult or it's actually very clear here who is the writer of this parable because no woman would describe her womb as a prison, right? In fact, we believe that we interact with our babies when they're in our bellies, right? When we read this, we realize that ultimately we can't help them, right? We can't. We feel connected and we feel them and they feel us, but there isn't, right, God forbid there's a problem. The baby's a part of you. You still can't right? Um, know it or interact with it. But here, the comparison is to a person who's languishing in prison and no one pays attention to him. right? I can't help but read that in a way of what are you talking about? No one's paying attention. right? The mother is absolutely attentive to the baby. But again, going back to the Iov idea, there is a prison, there is a womb, but the only human interaction is between God and the fetus. And here the chesed, that god does for the fetus is very amorphous light a candle right i mean what is that what does a candle symbolize right what does it really give the fetus it gives him light it gives him some kind of comfort right he's not he's not totally alone he's not in the dark right yeah
1: i just thinking of that my original picture this being so nice but this would not sound the same if a woman was writing this. Correct. I think a woman is. It doesn't happen like that. Right. The woman is growing up, and feeling pain and being, you know, having all kinds of. Oh, you're Maybe saying you're back easy. to the first one? Yeah. The, the uh, About how made me feel when I first read it. A well, man sees it like that. Right. It
0: appears it to be right.
1: If a woman was writing that, it was and actually went through the
0: whole nine months. Right, right, right. It's impossible to imagine as a disembodied experience. Right, right. All of a sudden turned
1: into gold, Right, right. So, go, right, right. so we, we have to go, but I
0: just want to leave you this one thought. This idea of God lighting a candle for the fetus, we see in a lot of different traditions. It's in, the, in, the, in the Babli, you all know the story about the angel teaching the, the baby the Torah. It happens by candlelight. Okay? But what's beautiful in the other traditions, not ours here, but in the other traditions, the baby is so enjoying the time in his womb and so loves the learning and can see from one end of the earth to the other. And then Midrash says, God is only able to get the baby into the world by extinguishing the candle. Right? So the candle has that function of, right, it's connected to Torah and it's connected to the joy of the womb. Here it's not. Right? Here the candle is the only thing the baby has. Right? And the, the, even the stranger kind of leaves after he lights the candle for the baby.